0: You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Good morning, everyone. Um, If we haven't met before, my name's Tom, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be starting this morning a new series in the book of Philippians, Um, so uh, we're going to go into that shortly. Before we do that, I just want to encourage you and urge you to come along to our prayer and vision night this Wednesday. Uh, We're starting at 7.45, and we'll be going on until about 9.30. It's going to be a big night for us. Um, Last week, um, as elders or pastors, we, we met together and prayed together for this evening on Wednesday, and we're really really sure it's going to be a significant night for us as a church and um, we're going to be sharing with you some things on the building front, um, which are going to be important and to be praying for. Um, if you've been around for a few months now, you will have noticed, or you'll know rather, that we've had a, a recent offering in which we've raised just over £80,000 for our future building plans, which is phenomenal. And the money's still coming in bit by bit. We're still going for it. We still believe that God will uh, help us to raise the £100,000 target that we uh, originally set out. And so if you still would like to give into to that, it's not too late. You can... Um, next week maybe in the offering buckets put a little an envelope in and mark it clearly for building rather than for general church funds or you can um, give online if you go onto our website we've now got a giving page and there's information on there as to how you can give into that and just let us know that it's for the building plans but we're sharing big news on that front on Wednesday so it's not a prayer meeting to miss out on so please do come along and uh, come expecting to meet with God we're going to pray for some many many other things as well, which are very exciting, that we're involved with right now in the church. So please come along, 7.45 on Wednesday night until 9.30, we shall see you there. Okay, let's turn to the book of Philippians in the Bible, shall we? It's in the New Testament, which is the second part of the Bible, so if you look towards the back, you'll likely stumble across Philippians eventually. We're going to be starting in chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. We're going to work through these verses together this morning, but before we do that, I want to just set out the context for you. Philippi was a city in Macedonia. It was a significant city. In fact, you can read in Acts 16 about how the church in Philippi came to be started. And in Acts 16, it says that this was a significant regional city. It would have been a place that many people would have come into and out of for business and other purposes. It was a big city, a strategic place. And yet Paul hadn't really planned to go there in the first place. Paul, who's writing this letter, was one of the early church Leaders. He originally, initially, he hated Christianity and wanted to do everything he could to oppose it. And God radically got hold of him, changed him, turned him around, and he started to live for Jesus and his glory. But Paul hadn't got plans to go to Philippi. And then one night in a dream, he saw a vision of a man from Macedonia who was saying, Come, we need your help. Come to Macedonia. We need you to come. And so Paul, believing that to be from God, turned up in Philippi. And he met, the first people he met was a bunch of women who were praying. And one of them was called Lydia, who was a rich businesswoman. And they were praying together. And Morris, when we had this Acts series at the back end of last year, Morris preached on this passage in Acts 16 and, said, and talked about the power of praying women. And it was a great message. And the same goes for men as well. The, the, when we pray, things open up. Things open up that wouldn't otherwise have been opened up. And these women were praying. They were God-fearing women. They probably hadn't heard of Jesus, but they were praying that God would do something amazing in their city. And Paul turns up and starts to talk with them. And a little time later, he and his companions are followed around by this girl who was demonized. She had a a spirit in her that caused her to be able to fortune tell and tell tell the future and so on. And and some people had got a hold of her and had taken her as a slave. And she would talk about their futures and they would get money. They were exploiting her, basically. And she was in a bad way. And she was following around Paul and his companions and proclaiming that they were here to tell everyone about Jesus. And Paul gets so fed up with this girl following them around, he just says, right, come on, out you come. And this spirit leaves her, and she's suddenly set free from it. But this really, really annoys her slave masters, who are making lots of money out of her. And so they they stir up trouble against Paul and his friends, and Paul and Silas end up getting thrown into prison. And there they are in prison at midnight, singing praises to God in a dingy prison, shackled by their their feet, and the the gates securely shut. There they are, praising God in the midst of a horrible situation. And suddenly an earthquake happens, and their shackles fall off their feet, and the the gates of the prison are opened up. And then the jailer thinks, he wakes up and he thinks, Crumbs, the gates are open here. If if they've left, then I'm going to be killed anyway, so I might as well kill myself. So he's about to kill himself. And then Paul and Silas says, No, we're still here. We've not run away. This guy's so amazed. And Paul gets to share the, the good news about Jesus with him. And he becomes a Christian. And then, then the church is started. A church is started in Philippi with this motley crew of this uh, rich businesswoman called Lydia and her friends. And then this formerly demonized slave girl and this suicidal jailer. And they start this church in Philippi, and Paul leaves Timothy behind with them, his, his friend, to help them to set up the church. And then about a decade later, Paul is writing to this church in Philippi to encourage them. But you need to know where Paul is at this point. He's in prison. We found that out from the text we've just read together. He's in prison. Now, he was in prison four or five times that we know of in his lifetime, just simply because he was talking to people about Jesus. Paul ends up in prison again. We think at this point he's in Rome. It's in not, not in a nice place at all. And the Philippian church had sent a guy called Epaphroditus to Paul with a gift of money to help Paul uh, so that when Paul is eventually released, he'll be able to continue to travel and to tell people about Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter and sends it back with Epaphroditus and says, on you go, share this with the church. That's the context of this passage that we've read today and the rest of the book of Philippians that we're going to work through in the coming weeks. That's what's going on, okay? Okay. So Paul writes to this church in Philippi, and the main theme of this letter is joy. There's 15 mentions of the word joy or rejoice or rejoicing in this letter, more so than in any other uh, letter of, of Paul or any other letters in the New Testament. It's about joy, which is quite relevant for us, right? Because we are searching for joy, aren't we? We're searching for happiness and satisfaction. I don't know anyone who's not. We're going about it probably in very different ways, But everyone is searching for joy and satisfaction in some way. So it's important that we see what the Bible has to say about joy and how we get hold of joy. What I can tell you right now is it is not, it certainly wasn't in Paul's eyes about comfort. It wasn't about possessions. It wasn't about power or position. He was in prison. You have no power when you're in prison. He had no possessions. He had no comfort. I don't know, I don't even pretend to know what prison is like in this country, but I don't think the, the, the prisons in Paul's day were any better than they are today. In fact, I think they're probably a lot worse. And Paul is talking about joy in this letter and how to get real, true, lasting joy. He is experiencing joy even in the midst of horrible circumstances. So I think there's a lot to teach us in this book as we go through in the coming weeks about joy, how to get true and lasting joy. And the main theme we've called this series No Greater Thing because Paul, again and again in this letter, reiterates that there is no greater thing than knowing Jesus. There is no greater thing. There's no true and lasting joy outside of knowing Jesus. That's why Paul wrote the letter. So we're going to go through it verse by verse. Let's read together the first couple of verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So the way they wrote letters back then was that they put their name at the very beginning, not like we do, we put it at the end of our letters. It's important they did this because this letter would have then been read out when the church at Philippi gathered together on Sunday. Uh, This would have been read out to the whole congregation. So it's quite important to have, right at the beginning, who on earth is writing this letter so that they can know whether it's worth listening to or not. So Paul is setting out that he and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus. And actually, it might be in the footnotes of your Bible, it might say slaves of Christ Jesus, which is quite a a shocking word for us in 21st century Britain, because we have, uh, thank God, we've come away from the horrendous slave trade of the previous centuries. We've put that behind us, thankfully. But the word slave still has horrible connotations for us. And yet Paul is happy to say, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. He saw Jesus not only as his friend and savior, but as his master, who he was living for. The person whose glory and reputation and renown he was living for was Jesus Christ. So he wasn't ashamed to say, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. I'm about doing his bidding, I'm about doing his work. I'm not living for my own glory and reputation, I'm living for Jesus. So he's able to say, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. That's the, it might say servants in our Bibles, but actually the original Greek would be more similar to slave. I think we've probably got servants in our Bible because the word slave is just not very palatable for us, given the connotations of the evil practices of the slave trade. You need to understand as well, though, that slavery in Paul's day was very different to the slavery, which we might associate with the slave trade, for example, Quite often, slaves had the opportunity to buy themselves into freedom as they maybe they were in slavery in the first place because they were in debt and they needed to pay a great debt. So they were actually in slavery for that reason. And quite often, slavery was actually not nearly as horrific and difficult as it was for the slaves in the slave trade of the 1700s and 1800s. So Paul and Timothy have to say, we're slaves of Christ Jesus. And you know, this is actually... If we're Christians here, which many of us are, is actually our calling is to be servants, slaves of Jesus Christ. He's a good master. We can we can so we're so shocked by that word, but Jesus is a good master. And we're to do his will. We're to live for his glory, not for our own glory, not for our own renown. We're living for Jesus. And so just in this first line here, I just want to pull out some things, just even in the next line as well. We we mustn't miss out on the Theology in these letters because some, you know, sometimes we can skip over the introduction bit and think there's nothing in there for us. There's loads in there for us. Jesus says that if we want to be great, we must become like servants. And on the night that he was betrayed, on the night that the last night he spent with his friends, he got onto his knees and washed the feet of his friends. Their sweaty, grimy, dirty feet, he got on his knees and washed their feet and said, This is how you must be with one another. You must look out for others' interests. You must look out for uh, others' needs and serve others. That's the deal. That's what you sign up to when you become a Christian. It's actually to look out for others above your needs. Jesus demonstrated it wonderfully by doing that and then dying on the cross, taking our place, serving us even in his death. That's what it means to be a servant. And so Paul and Timothy... Identifying themselves as servants of Jesus Christ. And then they write to the saints in Christ Jesus, the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. It's important we don't miss here what's just happened. He's calling this ragtag bunch of formerly suicidal jailers and formerly demonized uh, slave girls and rich businesswomen, he's calling them saints. He's calling them saints, holy ones. He's describing them as ones who have been washed and they're pure. They have value. I love that word that came through this morning about value. We come to see Jesus as ultimately the one with value. But also, you know, we are held as valuable people in God's eyes. We might define ourselves in a number of other ways. We might see ourselves as sinful or uh, dirty or whatever, failures, whatever it might be. But God sees us as saints. He sees us as holy ones. It's so important that we understand that we've been made righteous in christ that is to say that all that we deserved all that we deserve for our sin and rebellion against god jesus received on the cross and all that he deserved for his obedient life and perfect choices we received his reward we received we get to know god we get to be right we're righteous in god's sight we're seen as perfect in god's sight that's what identifies us. That's what, that's what we're identified as. We're identified as saints. It's not because of choices we make. It's because of who we're associated with. In the Old Testament, there would be holy ground or a holy mountain. It wasn't because that holy mountain had made some virtuous choices in its lifetime. It's because it was associated with God. And God dwelt there. And we're, we're, we're described as temples of the Holy Spirit If we're Christians. We're t- described as the place where God himself now dwells. We are saints. Yes, we still get things wrong. Yes, we still sin. But our identity is as saints, and we need to understand that. Paul was very happy and confident to write to this church, which, as we will find out later in the letter, wasn't a perfect church. There was some bit of bickering going on, a bit of an argument going on between two women. And it was not by no means a perfect church, and Paul is happy to call them saints. And, and we could well start our meetings on a Sunday morning by saying, good morning, saints. We're not going to do that. That would be weird but we could do that and it'd be true because no matter what we have done and the choices we have made, if we're in Christ, we are saints. We're holy in God's sight and we need to understand that. So let's continue, shall we? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul felt deeply for this church. He thanked God for them in every prayer of his. And no doubt, the other churches that he was relating to as well, he thanked God for them. There's a couple of things that strike me here. Firstly, is that he was praying with joy and thanksgiving. Even though he's in prison, he probably didn't have a TV there or a snooker table or whatever else. He was in a grotty prison, really suffering, probably going often without enough food, probably very malnourished. He's suffering and he's able to pray with joy and thanksgiving. Just consider that for a moment. Consider that for a moment. Many of you going through difficulties, many of you, I know, going through real hardship. Paul is still able to pray with joy and thanksgiving, even though his prayers, probably for a nice easy life, have not seemingly been answered at this point because he's in prison. I don't even know if that was what he was praying for, actually. He probably wasn't praying for that. But his prayers for protection over his life and for a safe passage to go and preach the gospel seemingly weren't being answered at that point, and yet he was still praying with joy and thanksgiving for this church in Philippi. He's still able to think of others in the midst of suffering. He's a true disciple of Jesus in that respect, who on the cross, as he was bleeding and suffering and dying, was able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. He's able to turn to his friend John and say, John, look after my mum. Mum, look after John. He's able to think about others, even in the midst of suffering. Paul was really a disciple of Jesus in that way. And we are to emulate Jesus in that way. In that even when we're going through hardship, we think of others and we pray for others. And we still are able to say thank you to God for the things that we do have. And give thanksgiving. I think that's quite striking. As we grow in disciples of being of Jesus, as we grow in being disciples of Jesus we'll have concern for others. Secondly, the thing that strikes me about this is his affection for the church here is on display. We read in a little while that he yearns for them with the affection of Jesus Christ. He yearns for them. he loves this church that 's the nature of apostolic ministry that people as they plant churches and as they move on to other places, they, they still hold them in their hearts and they say, oh, I want to be with you, even though I'm having to go elsewhere and travel elsewhere and preach the gospel elsewhere in new ground where there's no believers yet, I still yearn for you. I want, I want the very best for you. And it's the, it's the nature of leadership in the church. It's the nature of leadership that we as elders in this church, we long for you and we pray for you. And when we get together, we pray. We pray at length for you guys. We can't pray for you all individually by name. It's too many. We pray for you as a church because we love you. And that should be the nature of any leadership in the church, that we have a longing and an affection for people. It's not a domineering thing. It's not a, we're better than you all. We're going to try and you know, push our agenda. No, no, it's all about actually yearning and longing for and praying for and having concern for. That is leadership in any context of the church, whether you're in small group leadership or whatever it might be, yearning for people, Longing for them, longing for the very best for them. That is how Paul felt about the church. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From the very first day, this church had come to partner with Paul. He didn't stick around long in Philippi when that church got started. He didn't stick around long at all. And yet they partnered with him from the first day until now. They partnered with him financially. We know that they gave him financial gifts to enable him to travel and to uh, set up ministries and all this kind of stuff. But they also prayed for him. They prayed for him. And it's so important that we understand that there is a bigger picture than Ipswich. We love this town. We really love this town. I hope you love this town. We love it and we want to see great things happen here. And yet there's a bigger picture as well. There's a bigger picture of many, many other towns and cities in this nation and in other nations where there needs to be such a wave of the gospel where people might come to know Jesus. It so needs to happen in so many, many places in this world and we need to get to understand that there is a big picture. And this is what our Enough evenings are all about. When we get together two or three times a year with other churches that we partner with locally and we pray for situations all across the world that we have not really a lot to do with, not a lot in common with, maybe culturally very different to us. And we pray for situations because we want to partner with those who are really spreading the gospel in an apostolic way. Our very own Morris, who's one of the elders here with me and others, he is in uh, Holland right now helping to establish churches and set up church plants. He's often in different nations. We want to partner with him in what he's doing because we see that there's a bigger picture than just about Ipswich. And this is a big picture, right? We want to see massive things going on here but we've, we so want to get caught up in praying for other nations. You know, as we've done this through the Enough Evenings we've had, I found myself praying for places in Calgary and Canada and other places in like Rotterdam, places I've never been and I may never go, but I'm concerned that they're doing well and I'm concerned that the gospel is spreading and that those churches are thriving because I've started to pray for them. Places that probably never even crossed my mind before. We partner in the gospel through prayer, through giving and through seeing the big picture. This was a big concern for Paul, that they got caught up in all that he was doing beyond Philippi. Then we're going to come to verse 6, and this is where we're going to base ourselves for most of today. I know we haven't got long left together. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I've called this morning's message God's good work in us before the final day. God is about a good work in us. If you've placed your faith in Jesus here, he's about a good work in you. It started when you first had your eyes opened to the good news of Jesus. You first placed your faith in him. You were adopted in God's family. You were forgiven, freed from all that you've done wrong. It started then and it will go on throughout your life until the day that you see Jesus and you get to be with him forever. God is about a good work in us throughout that time. It's a good work in us in which he's making us more like Jesus. That's the work in us that he is doing. He wants to make us more like Jesus. We can often feel that it's not a good work. We can often think that he's asking us to lay down things which we're really enjoying. And we really kind of think of the most important thing. And he asks us to lay things down sometimes. And we can think, this isn't a good work. This is a painful work. Or it might be that we have suffering in our lives. And we can think, how is this a good work, God, that you're doing? He's about a good work in us, even when it's a bit painful. He wants to make us more like Jesus. And Paul is confident. He is absolutely assured and confident that God would complete the work that he'd started in these people at Philippi. Absolutely confident. Why was he confident? Well, his confidence was based in the godness of God and not in the Christianness of the Christians. That's, how God, that's why God is faithful to us. It's not because... We are somehow making good choices and he's going to stay faithful to us because of that. No, it's because he doesn't lie. He stays true to his promises. It's based in his godness, not in our virtue or choices. So God is about a work at putting the finishing touches to us between now and the day that we go to be with him forever. It's like we're being prepared for that great wedding feast. That great wedding feast when we'll be with Jesus and there'll be music and food and dancing and you know what I think you you may have this picture in your head that the music will be in some way medieval and kind of not very cool I think there'll be music of all kind of generations and genres I think it's going to be an amazing party and the food's going to be like nothing else you've ever tasted and the wine is going to be unbelievable and out of this world some of you are into your wine I know (laughs) it's going to be amazing God's preparing us he's putting the finishing touches to us for that final day Yesterday, Sarah and I were at a wedding in London, and the bride was about, I think she might have been nearly 40 minutes late, actually. And it was great, because I got to catch up with all my friends. I didn't really want her to turn up. I was enjoying myself, I was enjoying myself so much. But she, she was late, because she was putting the finishing touches to her, and no doubt her bridesmaids were helping her. She wanted to look the very best she could for the groom that was awaiting her at the church. She wanted to look so, so good. God is putting the finishing touches to us for that final day. He's working on us. He's not, there's going to be no rushed, kind of botched job. He's working on us bit by bit, making us fit for that final day. On our wedding day, Sarah's dress, her, the strap on her dress ripped with about uh, 25, 30 minutes to go. And it wouldn't st- her dress wouldn't stay up. I was, I was completely unaware of this. I was waiting in the church. But thankfully, her dad is handy with a sewing kit, quickly sewed it together if you look closely, you could see that it was a it was a sewn-up job. But from you know, you couldn't see it from the outside. But there'll be nothing like that. You'll be, there'll be nothing like that with God. He's bit by bit getting us ready for the final day, for that great wedding feast where Jesus will be united with his church, his bride. He's getting us ready for that day. There's a day when all of God's purposes will reach their consummation, where every knee will bow. We're going to read this in chapter 2 in a few weeks' time, where every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the day that we're looking forward to. God is making us ready for it. He's doing a good work in us. And when we realise that, when we realise that God's about a good work in us, it will help us, even in suffering, to say, by faith, Without this, I wouldn't be ready. Without this, I wouldn't be ready. God is doing this work in me. He's using even difficulties to make me ready for the day of Christ. We'll be able to say that by faith, that God is using all things. He's able to work all things for the good of those who love him. Every situation, that all things means really, really awful stuff and really, really good stuff. He's able to use all those things to get us ready for the day of Christ. It's good to know, isn't it? It's good to know that we're in God's capable hands. It's good good to know that he's very capable. He knows what he's doing. He's very wise. And we're in his hands. If you're a Christian here, it means you're his child. It means that he absolutely delights in you. He loves you. And he's committed to you. He's committed to you. And that commitment isn't going to fade if we get things wrong. He's committed to us. We're in his hands. So whatever we're going through, he's doing a good work in us. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not someone who doesn't finish what he starts. He's not one of those people, I don't know if you're like that, you start projects and they're just all over your house maybe, there's unfinished projects, and you think, oh, I'll get around to doing that one day. God's not like that. He's not like me who, when I, I about five years ago, I thought, I'm going to run every single day. I'm going to get really fit, I'm going to run every day. And I've lasted three days which my wife reminds me of regularly. She says, are you going to start running again sometime soon? God's not like that. God's not like that. He finishes what he starts. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Let's read these, these amazing verses together. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. We will be like him. It's a promise. God has promised it. We will be like him when we see him as he is in this day to come, this glorious day. When Jesus returns, we will see him as he is and we will be like him. And it says here that those who know this, they will purify themselves as they are already pure. It's an unusual phrase, isn't it? If you're already pure, why do you need to purify yourself? Well, we've been made pure. You need to understand that's your status. You're standing before God. You're pure. You're blameless before him. Your status is one of perfection before God. And in light of that, we then purify ourselves. We make sure that there's nothing in our lives that's offensive to God. We make sure there's nothing in our lives that will cause others to stumble. That will, we want to make sure our lives are pointing people to, to God for his glory. So we purify ourselves as we are already pure. He's doing a good work in us. We partner with him in that work. He is doing the good work in us. So how do the Philippians know that God is doing this good work in their lives. How can they be sure? How can we be sure? Well, Paul, in verses 9 to 11, gives us a few clues. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There we have that purity theme again. Filled with the fruit of righteousness, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So, if God is doing this work in our lives, we will find that our love will grow. This is about growth. We will find that our love for others will grow and grow and grow. We will find that our love for others will actually abound. It will overflow. There's a great quote here from uh, Matthew Harmon, who's a Bible commentator. He says this, Far from being a static reality... Biblical love is something that grows over time and overflows into our thoughts, words, and actions more and more. So if we are to assess our lives, we ask ourselves, is God about a good work in me? Is your love for God and for others growing? Is it growing? Is it growing more and more and more? You know, we will not be perfect until that day. We're perfect in status, but we'll not be perfect in every single day aspect until we see Jesus. So in that time, we're a work in progress. So you might think, "Oh man, I'm so aware of my shortcomings. I'm so aware of where I fail. And is God really doing this work in me? Are you growing in love? It's not that you're perfect. Are you growing in love more and more? Is the trajectory one of growth? Is it overflowing into your thoughts and actions the way you are with others? Is it growing? You can expect for that to grow. You can expect for it to grow as God does his good work in your life. Not only will your love grow, but your knowledge and discernment will grow. There's a word used here, uh, when we see the word knowledge here, in the Greek, which was the original language in which Paul would have written, it's this word epignosis, which talks about this knowledge of high things. It's talking about knowledge of God. It's talking about knowledge of Jesus Christ. Our knowledge of Jesus is to grow more and more. It's our knowledge of who he is. Our relationship with him is to grow. It will grow more and more as God does this work in our life. As we come to know Jesus more, as we come to know his word in a deeper way, we'll come to discern and approve what is excellent. We'll come to be discerning. There's so many choices that lay before us, isn't there? There's so many choices that you will face as soon as this service ends. There's so many choices. How you spend your time, how you use the members of your body, How you speak to others, how you use your money, what we place our hope in, how we find our joy. Whatever it might be, there's choices ahead of us. And as we come to know Jesus more and more, as we come to walk with him more closely every single day, we will become more discerning people. We'll become more discerning and we'll make wiser choices about what we do with the things presented before us. Our love for God and others will grow, but our discernment will grow as well, we will be at our most discerning when we're close to Jesus. We'll be at our most. Do you want to be discerning? Do you want to make wise choices? Draw close to Jesus. Draw close to Him, and He will help you to see what is excellent for you. I speak to people sometimes who are making just unwise choices in their lives, and I ask them, "Are you spending time with Jesus right now? Are you close to Him?" The answer is always no. It's always no. You know, as we spend time with Jesus, we are going to make wise choices. As we, as, we, as we remain close to him, as we walk closely to him, we will make wise choices. The Christian should be the most discerning person in the staff room, in the office, at the school gate, at the pub, wherever it is that you're spending time with others. You should be, if you're a Christian, you should be the most discerning person. You should be wise because you spent time with Jesus and he helps you to see what is good. He helps you to see what is good for you. What is a good course of action for you? What is a good choice for you? Now, some might say, well, I just want to know Jesus. I just want to spend time with him. I don't really want to read his word. I don't really want to know the Bible. I mean, I just want to know him. I don't need to know facts about him. That's a foolish thing to say. Imagine how foolish it would be if I said to my wife, Sarah, I just want to spend time with you. I don't want to hear about your day. I don't want to hear about what you've been up to. I don't want to hear what your history's like or your past. I just want to hang out with you. That's not... It's a false dichotomy. If you want to know Jesus, you spend time in his word. You spend time in his word and you get to know him better through that, through prayer. Jesus is to mean to be known. This is salvation itself. Salvation is knowing Jesus. We might sometimes think, well, salvation is a ticket to heaven when we die. Salvation is knowing Jesus. Salvation is knowing Jesus. And it means that we get to know him more and more in this life and indeed in eternity. But salvation is knowing Jesus. And sometimes Jesus will lay challenge to your life. Jesus walked into the temple and saw that they were selling all sorts of things in the temple, making a mockery of what the temple was supposed to be for. And he turned over the tables. Caused quite a stir, really. And he will do that in our lives. He will put his finger on things sometimes and say, that needs to change, that needs to go. Because you know me and I love you and I want what's best for you. Salvation is knowing Jesus. And we can sometimes think we know it all, right? Sometimes we can think I've, I've just, I've got to the final age of 29, which is how old I am today. And I just know it all about Jesus. I know Jesus fully now. I know everything that I can possibly know. We're so foolish when we say that. So foolish. I want to read you this great quote from Michael Reeves. He's written a book called Christ Our Life, which I'm enjoying reading at the moment. He writes this, if there is nothing more precious to the Father than him, that's Jesus, there cannot be any blessing higher than him or anything better than him. Sometimes we find ourselves tiring of Jesus, stupidly imagining that we've seen all there is to see and used up all the pleasure there is to be had in him. We get spiritually bored But Jesus has satisfied the mind and heart of the infinite God for eternity. Our boredom is simple blindness. He must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us in every situation for eternity. Do you get that? If God, the eternal God, has been eternally satisfied with Jesus the Son for all eternity, then man, we can't get bored of Jesus. We can't think we know that all there is to know. We can't get complacent and think, I just know, all, I know everything now. I'm not going to make any effort to get to know Jesus better in my life. He's, he has satisfied the mind and heart of the infinite God for eternity. So as we get to know Jesus more and more, we'll find out that nothing, nothing really compares to knowing him. There's no greater thing than knowing Jesus. And we'll become discerning people. We'll make wise choices, wise decisions. Stay close to Jesus, worship Jesus, come to know him more and more, come to be in awe of him and you'll live pure lives, ready for the day of Christ. Paul uses this phrase, pure and blameless, pure. Purity speaks of inner character, of decisions that you make when no one else is watching, when it's just you before God, purity. Blameless is talking about our reputation before others. If you're blameless, it means that no one could lay a just charge against you. Now, that's going to be difficult, right? We want to be aspiring to be pure and blameless. We want to bring glory to God. We want to be ready for the day of Jesus Christ. The very sight of Jesus, the very sight of Jesus is a transforming thing. To be able to behold him by faith, it transforms you. I want to read another quote from a dead guy called John Owen who lived in the 1600s. Do any of us find decays in grace prevailing in us? It's quite old school language. Deadness, coldness, lukewarmness, a kind of spiritual stupidity. There is no better way for our healing and deliverance. Yea, no other way but this alone. Namely, the obtaining a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith and a steady abiding therein. Constant contemplating of Christ and his glory is the only relief in this case. So if you find yourself lukewarm, if you find yourself kind of just getting bored of Jesus, if you find yourself finding other things to be of a more attractive prospect than Jesus, you need to behold him again by faith. How amazing he is. Everything else will seem really not worthwhile. Everything else will seem completely dissatisfying. Get close to him, you'll be transformed. He will do his good work in you. And then what will happen next? You will bear fruit. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to be fruit bearers. He wants us to bear the fruit of righteousness we see here in verse 11. Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. As we remain in him, that is to spend time with him, be with him, to be in his word to have his words remain in our hearts and minds, we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. That's a guarantee. It's a promise. We will bear fruit. And some, there's going to be a pruning. Those who bear fruit, it says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it might bear more fruit. Maybe some of you are going through a pruning period in your life where you just feel, man, I'm really being cut back here. I'm going through a tough time. It may well be that God is pruning you so that you can bear more fruit for his glory. That's a comfort there for those of us suffering right now. That even in the midst of that, he's making us more fruitful. So that we might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. We're already righteous. I've explained this already. We're righteous in him and we're becoming what we are. We're, de- we're gradually more and more bearing fruit that is in line with our righteous status. We're demonstrating whose we are. By the work of God the Father and of Jesus we're demonstrating who and what we are. We're growing. He's doing a good work in us, getting us ready for the day of Christ. He want, God wants to help us to change. He wants us to help us to change for his glory. We've got to keep the day of Christ in full view. We can so often uh, think that we don't really want the day of Christ to come because there's so many other things we want to do in this life, right? You like, you like that I'm like that, God I want to see my kids grow up or I want to do this, I want to go to that place and travel to that amazing place and I want to see England finally win a tournament in football, I want to see it I don't want to hear about 1966 all the time we can sometimes think like that can't we but you know the day of Christ is going to be amazing and heaven is going to be so much better than anything we can experience here we need to long for that day the Philippian church would have longed for that day they would have longed for it they would have prayed for it And I think so often we can lose an eternal mindset. We can think, there's so much more I want to enjoy here. When actually there is good, an amazing destiny awaits us. We long for the day of Christ. We keep it in our mind. We get ourselves ready for the day of Christ. When you're planning for a big occasion, it stays in your mind. I recently led a conference, and the date uh, that that conference uh, was starting was in my mind for months, having to get ready for it. It was just, it was in the forefront of my mind. We must keep the day of Christ in the forefront of our minds. He's going to come back. We want to be ready. God's helping us to be ready. He's putting the finishing touches to us. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.